If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. According to author Eric Berkowitz, the compulsion to eradicate views that we find inconvenient or unpalatable is hardwired into humanity. And history is full of examples of censorship. From the first emperors of Rome, through Henry VIII, to the American judiciary of the First World War. But Eric argues in his new book, Dangerous Ideas, that censorship never really works. Here, in conversation with our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, he explains why. Eric, reading your new book, it soon becomes evident that the issue of censorship and and the way in which we perceive history are inextricably linked. Uh, You cite in the book George Orwell's quote that censors tend to believe that history is to be created rather than learned. So my first question, I guess, is is why have censors from China's first emperor who burned books and buried alive hundreds of scholars to to the Spanish invaders who destroyed the Maya civilization's most sacred texts? Why have they been so keen to rewrite or eradicate history? You know, it's not just censors. I think it's all of us. It's interesting. I mean, as history departments close left and right, and as history becomes exactly the major parents don't want their children to to take, uh, history is remains an absolutely urgent living thing for all of us. It's a form of practical literature. The historian Plum called it ideology with a purpose. And to answer your your question, authorities in particular, have a need to rewrite history, to do what Orwell called, in effect, to make history a palimpsest, to be scraped clean and rewritten as as necessary. It gives coherence to a society's existence, both individually and collectively. It justifies institutions and it undermines adversaries. Particularly for authoritarian governments, history is necessary to show their inevitability and to show how they how they must be but it's not just authoritarian governments that's actually kind of the easy part i mean we could um talking about my own country the united states history becomes an urgent thing i mean we could talk about the current situation but even back in world war 1 this i found astounding during world war 1 after america dithered for 3 years then we get into the war and we're of course britain's ally Right around 1917, this Hollywood film, filmmaker turned out this epic film called Spirit of 76. What could be wrong with that? 
tells the origin story of the United States, all the familiar stories, but it also included something, a massacre by the British Army called the Wyoming Valley Massacre of, you know, Americans. That occurred, but the filmmaker found himself sentenced to 10 years in jail and and a heavy fine. Why? Because the judge, it was the film, the accurate retelling of history became sedition in World War I because, as the judge said, it would make us a little bit slack toward our allies. Even talking about what Britain might have done 150 years earlier. So history becomes, at least for this judge, who actually jailed an artist, a producer, for, for what he's doing, became urgent that we can't have historical narratives affect the current frame of mind. I mean, we're in the absolute thick of it now with Holocaust de- denial. I mean, the the notion of, I mean, that's a benevolent form of censoring history and that we, you know, many countries forbid a lie about history in order to prevent, you know, a very toxic form of racism. But on the flip side of that, Poland has a law now, which is the opposite of Holocaust denial. And for them to even have any academic books that implicate them in the murder of the Jews during World War II is itself wrong. They had two historians publicly apologize, cultural revolution style, for for a book accurately implicating a local town mayor. So, you know, America is now ourselves. We're tearing ourselves to shreds over history. It's astounding to me. The point is that Historical narratives, even the arguing about historical narratives itself is a form of ideology and in itself is a form of identity. And so, yes, of course, you know, the Soviet Union erased the picture of Trotsky, you know, re- rewrote its own, its own history. That is so hard to grasp. What is a little harder to grasp and what is a little more difficult is when more democratic societies themselves impose censorship or at least attempt to in order to mold the current frame of mind. I mean, here's my last example. I simply couldn't believe this, but Korea recently passed a law making it a crime to advance a historical theory about some pro-democracy demonstrations that happened in 1980. There's only one narrative that's allowed at this point. I think it's probably the right narrative, but when you freeze history, when you freeze history into any historical narrative, when you bar debate, then you're heading down a very, very dark path. That takes me nicely on to my next question. So if there's an overriding argument in your book, from what I can gather, it's that censorship doesn't work. Now, you're writing this in an environment in which people you know, routinely self-censor on social media, where autocratic regimes around the globe are continuing to clamp down on free speech. I mean, given all this, I mean, how how do you justify that argument? How do I justify the argument that censorship doesn't work? Yes. Because it never really has. I mean, the ideas behind the words or the images or the expressions uh, themselves live despite what the censoring authority, you know, hopes to achieve by removing the actual, you know, fixed form of expression, be it a book or a movie or anything else. Censorship certainly works with respect to the unfortunates 
who are jailed or murdered or, you know, et cetera, for what they're saying. But the ideas themselves persist. And also, censorship is by nature incomplete. I mean, any one authority never has any one, you know, government or church never has full authority over all of humanity. So, you know, there's there's always another source willing to provide whatever, you know, work has been censored. When something is censored, that also creates a forbidden fruit aspect that makes it more attractive and more uh, necessary for people to have. As soon as the printing press was invented and the explosion of new censorship laws happened, what occurred was an instant black market profiting from the profits to be made from the forbidden books. Publishers were telling their writers, you know, publish anything that would be forbidden. (laughs) And also what is forbidden today will often become the standard of tomorrow. The most stark example being the Tyndale Bible from the 16th century, where, you know, Tyndale, uh, a great scholar, read Luther's translation of of the Bible in German, wanted to do the same in English, was barred from doing so. Uh, this is a very truncated history. Eventually met his, yeah, and did it. There were thousands and thousands of copies smuggled into England. In fact, English authorities had to effectively buy examples from Tyndale himself in order to burn them in Britain. Tyndale meets uh, a very violent death. And very soon afterwards, his work becomes the basis for the King James Bible itself. I mean, what is banned today often becomes the standard of, I'm going to reach way, way back. In the second century AD, there's a beautiful story that, that, that is in the book about a rabbi, uh, Rabbi Ben Tradian, who was condemned to death by the Romans for teaching uh, Jewish law against a prohibition. And in order to make things a little bit worse for him and more symbolic, the Romans wrapped the Torah around his body and then set him aflame. And while, as the myth goes, while the flames rise, his students call out to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, what do you see? What are you experiencing? And he said, well, the parchment is burning, but the words are flying away. And, And I thought that was an extraordinary metaphor for the fact that you know, despite the best efforts, censorship simply doesn't work because the words and the ideas live. I mean, we're even circumventing, jumping ahead to 2,500 years, or 2,000 years, we're circumventing the most effective censorship system ever, which is in China over the internet. People are embedding news stories in the online game Minecraft, and that's Reporters Without Borders did that. They managed to smuggle thousands of news stories into China through that. Censorship is really an expression of helplessness by the censoring authority more than it is actually an effective suppression of, of the ideas. You, you cite the example of Ernst Zundel being put on trial in Canada yeah. in the 1980s for Holocaust denial. Now, you, you argue that the... While those attempts may have been well-intentioned, they were ultimately counterproductive. I mean, why was that? This goes into a whole narrative, which I think is probably the most interesting, which is censorship. I mean, it's not terribly fascinating when you read about an authoritarian government barring speech that, you know, barring dissent. We can sort of understand that. We can understand the futility of it. But at the same time, that's a rather simple calculus. 
the more censorship gets more interesting when it's in effect benevolent, when it's trying to advance a more positive narrative or whether, you know, where the, where it's not just a jealous guarding of authority, where it's something that's trying to mold the public discourse in a positive way. And we have that with hate speech laws. We have that with fake news laws, which I would love to talk about. And we have that also with Holocaust denial laws. Ernst Zundel was um, uh, a resident of Canada, originally from Germany, and he was a part of this crop of Holocaust denier, you know, Nazi sympathizers. And he published a book, a pamphlet called Did Six Million Really Die? And he, in that, he denied, you know, the very factuality of the Holocaust. These laws are in place in order to not allow anti-Semitic narratives from overwhelming, you know, the truth of it. He was put on trial. Effectively, Canada didn't have a Holocaust denial law per se, but they found something similar. And they put him on trial, and he showed up to, to, to trial every day wearing a banner saying free speech, saying, you know, this is my, my right. Effectively, like a lot of the extreme rights, say, when they're caught saying terrible things, they say, well, free speech. If he lost uh, the first few rounds, and then he ended up, winning before the Canadian Supreme Court, which held that it is wrong to freeze any historical narrative in one place, even at this cost. And they reminded Canadians and Americans of the slanders that were rendered against African-Americans and, and Native Canadians and Native Indians, that they were inferior, stupid, deserved to be conquered, etc., and reminded us that those narratives were frozen in history, were taught as truth until they were undone. And it was a bit of a bitter lesson. And also, nothing pleased Zundel more than being tried for this. I mean, he, he it gave him more legitimacy than he had ever had before. And so even when you try and censor, I mean, who can argue with the Holocaust denial law? Even when you try to mold the public discourse in a positive way, it can backfire. Hate speech laws, you know, again, who can argue with trying to reduce the level of hatred, trying to reduce the level of, you know, hurt and slander? There are certain things that, that press my buttons. There are certain things that I'm sure press yours that we hate that we hate hearing. But we always have to think, at least in this context and in the context of fake news laws, who's doing the censoring and for what purpose? Hate speech laws are now inevitably used to quell dissent. Fake news laws are inevitably used to quell truth. I really believe that that even laws that sound benevolent or efforts that are benevolent, when they come to using authority to mold speech, inevitably we're going to get results that we didn't intend or that in, in effect could be more harmful. What limits, if, if any, then, should we place on free speech? I mean, is there anything you believe that people shouldn't be allowed to say? Well, you know, uh, Spencer, this this is something that I think you and I can, can both talk about. I mean, yes, I am a scholar on the history of censorship, but I'm also a sentient human being. And so when there are things that are said... I mean, I, I identify very strongly with being Jewish. I have other forms of identity. And, and so when, when things are said that jar me, that hurt me, that I feel insult, you know, people that I care about, then my initial visceral reaction is to want to stop it. And so if you ask Eric Berkowitz, I can give you a laundry list. 
But at the same time, other than perhaps the direct incitement to riot, perhaps the direct incitement to 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 cause harm, I'm having a hard time really finding it because I've seen a lot of and this you know leads into what we were just talking about. I've seen a lot of speech laws that address harm but inevitably have poor results. I think we have to make a really big distinction and it's just very very hard to do between tolerance and approval. You know, the notion of freedom of speech is built on tolerance. It's built on allowing speech that, as Justice Holmes here in the United States said, allowing thoughts we hate to be voiced. To be tolerant of an open marketplace of ideas is not necessarily to approve what is being said. And 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 we have a very, I know that as much as I've thought about this, <clears throat> it's very, very difficult for me to make that distinction, but that's critical. We have to, because once speech, for example, anti-Semitism or, you know, for trans people, speech that is anti-trans, et cetera, speech that hurts us, to tolerate it is not to say, I approve of what is being said. I think we had sort of, I guess, maybe for 60, 70, 80 odd years, society collectively was able to make that distinction that we're going to allow noxious speech in order to allow good speech also. But I think at this point, we're having a very, very difficult time making those distinctions. And, you know, in your own country, in Britain, I think on the legislative level, that confusion, that that return of confusion, I mean, in Britain, one of the great beacons of freedom of speech the world has ever known, like in the United States, we're having a very difficult time now making those distinctions. You're about to pass some laws that blend tolerance and disapproval, um, I think, irreparably. Do you want to talk about those in a bit more detail now? Sure, sure. Uh, because I think that's what's going on urgently now. As I said, in you know, not only in the United States are we passing laws left and right, which I think are coming from the far right and trying to prevent the discussion of race, we're also on the left passing a lot of rules barring what are racist and offensive speech. In Britain now, you know, there, there there's, I think, a very, very well-intentioned uh, effort on the, on the parliamentary level to turn down the level of hatred, to turn down the, the level of offense uh, online. And so there's this online safety bill that's making its way through Parliament that's been in the works for years. And it puts on the platforms a duty of care to prevent adverse, any speech that could potentially pose adverse psychological harm on anyone. And, you know, again, what could be wrong with that, you know? And, 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 but what it does is it, it, it even bars legal speech. It's called lawful but awful. Even when speech is, would be legal if said on the street or in a newspaper, it would bar it online. And that, it, it actually, you know, puts the responsibility on, the, on Facebook and Twitter and the others to go hunt that down and and bar it in the face of gargantuan fines or potentially even criminal liability by their by their executives that is a classic example of 
I'll call it grotesque overreach, because in the effort to try and improve the discourse, what you're doing is you're going to be causing massive, massive takedowns of speech. And a lot of speech that is worthwhile will be stamped down in the process. I mean, Spencer, it's never you or me or maybe even the listeners of this program who vindicate the rights of the masses. It's the obnoxious ones. It's the grotesque ones. It's the ones that we don't want to have dinner with. It, you know, it's the outsider voices that 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 mark the limits that we all really enjoy. I mean, I can go back to John Stuart Mill, <clears throat> one of the greats who who made the very what is now obvious, but I think outrageous point for his time is that if there's one voice out of a thousand and that minority is fully obnoxious to the other 999, maybe that maybe that minority voice is right. Maybe the voice in the 19th century that said that African-Americans are not inferior, that their skulls are not shaped differently, that they don't, that they actually do feel physical pain, et cetera. Those voices should have been heard. And so in an effort to sanitize the discourse, which I, again, I don't think parliament is being particularly evil here, but I think there's overreach. Sanitizing the discourse can also lead us to a point where new ideas can't emerge. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. From that point forward, to discuss his regime, to compare it to the past, or even to discuss Confucian philosophy became uh, a death crime. This is an interesting point, one you, one you make in your book, um, which, which kind of grabbed me. You're pointing out that there's quite a lot of people at the moment who are calling for censorship, especially when it comes to sexism, racism, fake news, to be imposed. I mean, does this have any precedence in history of ordinary people calling for the imposition of censorship? In the distant past, I don't think that this question can really be applied because I don't think until, let's say, the 18th, maybe the late 17th century, the notion of censoring speech was ever considered such a bad thing. It was just the prerogative of the of the majority uh, and or of power. And no one particularly thought, my gosh, this is violating my rights. But if we want to focus this argument on, let's say, the last 80, 90, 100 years, a world that we could conceive of in a world in which the coordinates are, are fairly similar to what were existing, uh, no, this isn't precedented because most advances, let's, let's say all advances for freedom of speech, it was almost a zero, it's, it's almost been a zero-sum game. They've, their advances extracted at the price of power, extracted at the price of authority. And so it advances on dissent against warfare, dissent against the draft, dissent against all, you know, dissent against political moves were by nature reductions of, of power b- by governments. And they were generally advanced by outliers, by the left, for example, um, against centrist or right, right-wing governments. And so censorship was advances for the right to protest, etc. But now, in the last 30, 40-odd years, we're 
from the center left to the left, seeing free speech not necessarily as something good and a check against government power, but as something inherently threatening. And I think that is uh, an astounding development that when speech is allowed, it's a threat to my to my inner peace. It's a threat to my personal development or to my identity as a Jew, a gay person, a trans person, whomever, a person of, of certain nationality. And we're not looking to governments to, we're not looking to reduce the power of governments or authorities to censor. We're looking to expand the power to prevent us from this harm. And I think that is showing uh, almost a, a reversal of attitudes towards speech that have emerged over the last 60, 70 odd years. And I'm just kind of astounded. I mean, the notion of calling for censorship has almost become an affirmation of faith. It's almost become an affirmation of, you know, this is what I believe. I have these forms of belief and it's part of the, the toolkit of how I express it. I'm calling for the suppression of speech that goes against what I believe. So that's why professors in the United States from the left and the right, and I, I think also in Britain, are losing their jobs or finding themselves challenged repeatedly for expressing opinions that certain others simply don't agree with. That's less trying to stop the speech than saying, this is who I am, this is what I believe, and I'm going to target this person who feels who feels differently. Um, that's not a good development. Uh, again, this gets back to what we were saying. The, we're losing the ability, I think, to distinguish between tolerance and and a- approval. To tolerate is not to approve. It shouldn't be. Now, rewinding a little bit, you, you write that the ancients believed that words and ideas took on a physical form and that they can only be wiped out by, by burning. I mean, would you say that the desire to censor is is hardwired into us. And could you give us some examples of very early forms of censorship, please? Yeah. I mean, to continue what we were saying before, I mean, censorship from the ancient examples, there were a lot of different reasons for it. There were a lot of just different justifications for it. And so I think censorship, uh, continuing what we were talking about, is hardwired into us. I, th- I make the point that, sen- that the urge to censor is pretty much as old as the compulsion to speak because dissenting ideas, because words that jar our beliefs almost cause this visceral reaction to want to stop them, kind of like a mosquito or, or a, a loud noise. You want to run from it. But, you know, the, one of the earliest examples of censorship that I could find was more on a political level and on a suppression of history level, which was the first Chinese emperor Xin Shi Huang, we're now reaching back to the third century BC. It's astounding. I mean, this is a person who unified the seven kings of China, sort of made China, it's, it's from his name that the word China derives. I won't say he was loved. <laughs> uh, quite the opposite. He was, a, he was a rough character. And as much power as he accumulated, which was astounding, the more power you have, the more vulnerable you feel. And it galled him to hear his regime being compared unfavorably to, to what was then considered golden ages of the past, particularly by Confucian scholars. And so it shows the vulnerability, the fragility that power feels, that even hearing dissent made him nuts. And so he addressed it. 
He had every single book of poetry, history, philosophy, particularly Confucian philosophy, gathered and burned, kept exemplars for himself, an example of censorship not working, and burned them, others than those that way kept, and for good, for good measure, burned 400 Confucian scholars alive. From that point forward, to discuss his regime, to compare it to the past, or even to discuss Confucian philosophy became uh, a death crime. So, I mean, th- that kind of thing the fragility of power, the absolute touchiness of power against dissent has been carried through repeatedly. I mean, also censorship in, in the ancient world was, was, let's call it benevolent. Dissenting speech or irreligious speech was often considered to be something that would excite the ire of the gods themselves. And so for the good of society, irreligious speech or dissenting speech was you know, burned and by burning was almost by nature sacrifice. The smoke of the of the burning books rose to the gods in the same way that sacrificing uh, an animal or even a person. So, for example, Athens, when it was at you know when the war with um, Sparta, when the Peloponnesian War just began, it, it went quite badly. There was uh, this huge plague hit hit Athens. Uh, Thucydides describes it in quite amazing and grotesque terms. People are, you know, retching and dying on the street. And it was very quickly believed that something had gone wrong. Someone had upset the gods and this war was going, you know, it was also going quite, quite badly. So a number of philosophers who were questioning the existence of the gods, most famously Protagoras, who questioned whether we could even know that the gods exist, their books were quickly put to the flame and the philosophers who had been tolerated for a long time exiled in order to appease the gods themselves. So censorship wasn't always necessarily something, you know, to vindicate power. It was, there was this notion that we have to do something to change the collective fortunes of, you know, of people. And so is censorship hardwired into us now? Uh, I think it is. And I think what we were just talking about with respect to cancel culture etc., vindicates that. I mean, you give a, a quite sinister example of Henry VIII's decree <laughs> condemning anybody to death for even imagining his death. I wanted to ask you, basically, I mean, did a lot of rulers follow that lead, i.e. try to shape not just what people wrote and how they recorded history, but actually change or try and peer into their brain to see what they were thinking? I mean, is, is that quite a, a common thing you see down, down the centuries? The notion of a thought crime has always been lurking behind any effort at censorship. Censorship itself could be a spectacle of power. Look that, you know, I have the power to burn books, so I am. But it's also been an effort at trying to address the ideas behind them. The treason statute that you just talked about in Henry VIII, what's remarkable about it is they sort of come out with it. This is a statute from the 14th century, which defined treason as anything that they, they call the compassing or imagining the death of the king. Okay, so what does that mean? That is, you know, clearly, word for word, a thought crime uh, to imagine something. But initially, it was really, the words meant some kind of, they were interpreted to mean some kind of overt act, something you did to, to kill the king or to, you know, really challenge Richard II, very, which was Henry VIII's predecessor in this, very quickly did away with that requirement. And as he, he was uh, 
purging his court and you know murdering a lot of people. He took the imagining word quite literally. Henry VIII, the same. His paranoia, I don't need to explain, but the idea of people even holding thoughts against him, be it his marriages, being his challenges to the Catholic Church, being whatever moves that he was making, was for him intolerable. I think he knew, as anyone knew, that you can't change thoughts, but at the same time, by expanding censorship prohibitions that broadly, it simply increases your power to terrorize. There's a wonderful example, which I'm going to bring up. There was a gentleman named Algernon Sidney, uh, a thinker in the 17th, and a politician, actually, in, from the 17th century in England, who uh, was an opponent of Charles II. And he, you know, his house was raided, and they found a book that he wrote called Discourses in Government, or Discourses on Government. And that became Exhibit A for his treason trial. And what that book said basically is that government had a responsibility to its people and that if if the king didn't meet those responsibilities, revolution was warranted. At his trial, Sidney said, this was in my closet. This wasn't even published. I should have the right to my own thoughts, to write down what I wish, to write down what I believe, and it shouldn't carry any liability unless it's published. And the judge said something pretty astounding. He said, curse not the king, I can remember this, even in thy bedchamber, or the birds will carry the words far, meaning there are thought crimes here in England. Even if you, in your bedchamber, in your mind, curse the king, that's not going to work. And so Sidney met a very gruesome end. And what's fascinating is that book, of course, Example Survived, and that became very urgent reading for the founders of the United States. And it's that book became um, known as the textbook of, of American Revolution. So maybe that judge, in vindicating the existence of a thought crime uh, in Britain, uh, was right. <laughs> right for all the wrong reasons, but it, was yeah, right. Yeah, it works so, out in yeah. the end, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I saw what you mean. Right, Eric, we can't complete this interview without talking about the rise of the internet and how that's changed the landscape for, on censorship. I mean, in your opinion, does it make true freedom of speech harder or easier to attain them? And, and, and where do you think we stand now, in, you know, in the, the beginning of the third decade of the 21st century? You know, I think the internet has been as cataclysmic in, the cataclysmic is the wrong word, as influential, as powerful as the invention of the printing press itself. And I think it's had both an astounding effect on expanding speech and an, what seems to be developing an equally powerful effect on giving authorities the right to suppress it. In the main sense, it's expanded the dimensions of censorship and speech in a way that we never could have imagined. Traditionally, it's been a two-dimensional affair. Uh, authority, be it a government or a church or you know, someone with the power to kill or jail or damn you against outliers, for example, you know, dissidents, heretics, nosy members of the press. It's been, you know, and what, as we've discussed, sort of a seesawing of power between those two sides. We now have a third player, which are sort of these pan-national platforms, which are loyal to no governments and is really where the discourse is happening. So Facebook and Twitter sort of exist outside government in many ways. And there are new bodies of law, which are their own terms of service, their own 
methods of doing things. In effect, with Facebook, since Mark Zuckerberg, who's effectively just a coder, owns the majority shares in Facebook, much of the discourse is what he feels he wants when he wakes up in the morning. Uh, and so that has made the dynamics much, much more complex. And in a sense, as I, uh, Eric Berkowitz, can voice something sitting here in my dungeon writing a thought, and it could be conceivably read by billions, uh, we've never ever has an engineer in Palo Alto or in California had the power to shut down the speech of either his own or her own leader, Trump himself, or the leader of another country. And so, yes, on the basic level, it's been an astounding expansion of speech and exchange of information, the likes of which we're still just trying to grasp. But it's hard to get some perspective now. But at the same time, it's it's given authorities an opportunity for surveillance, an opportunity for privacy invasions, and an opportunity for speech suppression in a way that we're, it's really hard to grasp. One of the things that we talked about was the British online safety bill, a British intrusion into online speech, I think for the right reasons. But at the same time, if you look at what's happening in Singapore, in Russia, in Cambodia, around the world, this has become a tool of surveillance that conceivably and in a very real sense, never has have you had the police show up at your front door, you know, within five minutes of typing something. <laughs> and so the utility of the Internet as a tool of surveillance is still being felt out and being exploited in a way that um, is very, very hard to grasp. That was Eric Berkowitz. Dangerous Ideas, A Brief History of Censorship in the West, From the Ancients to Fake News, is out now published by Westbourne Press. You can find a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. On Friday, we'll be uncovering the voices of schoolgirls from 1930s Bolton. (laughs) 